Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Hello, hello, hello. Bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. And welcome to I Foresee Trouble with Dalian Wallace. From sunny it's Strasbourg. Sunny. Well, so far on the rains in Little Royal. Yeah. Anyway, I'm back in studio. <laughs> um, Kira did a great job last week hosting the podcast with just yeah, I Nick think, on Jane, his own. We'll have to do a little. No, I know we'll have to do our own Nick one on and one. Kira and, uh, but I believe they were very popular. They were. I listened to so, things, yeah, So yeah, we're going to have to do a Claire and yeah, Damien one, I, know, I think, yeah. you know. Yeah, okay. What's that? <laughs> we're going to have yeah, to cut you, you out. <laughs> we heard yourself and Kira were very popular. So myself and Damien are going to do our own one now. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, it was probably more about, it was probably more about Kira than me. I mean, two people actually texted me and said, I love the sound of her voice. Oh, she's a great voice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she can have my spot. I'm happy to go. (laughs) Anyway, we can get more than three people in the studio. We'll have Kira back and we'll do the four of us. (laughs) As you you probably noticed, um, even though Kira was the one who first censored the jokes. Stop it. I got got to tell a joke last week. (laughs) Now, Kira wasn't madly impressed with it. Go on, you, I, have, I, a, you have a job I, for this. I, 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 I think her Catholic upbringing is kind of holding her back a bit. Uh, but no, in actual fact, I, I, I've been um, uh, out of my head a bit for the last few days. <laughs> Not on alcohol, <laughs> but, um, um, but I haven't prepared a joke. But just as a follow on from last week's joke, right? Because last week's. It was actually a story more than a joke, but it was actually told by the, the famous Michael Freeman from Galbally in Wexford, right? And he sent me on a... Fo- infamous. Infamous? Well, uh, whatever. Infamous <laughs> or famous. But um, either way, he he, uh, he texted me to let me know that the priest found his cock, which was great news. Now, he also added, uh, by the way, that he had two aunts yeah. who were nuns. Oh, he had and they had, see, and, and neither and, and neither of them had ever seen a cock. Okay. Which is interesting. And there goes all our listenership. <laughs> I haven't seen a cock either. Let's, let's no. move on to European affairs. I'm not even a nun. Oh, it's like herding cats here with you two. Like, honestly, let's go. Let's get started. We're in a plenary session in Strasbourg. Um, now, the big thing happening this week is Poland. Um, people might have read a few things about uh, what's been in the news. We had the Polish Prime Minister. Do you want to say his name there, Mick? You've ex- no, I think I'm actually going to leave it to you, right? Because uh, I'm struggling with it as well. Mateusz. If you said I'm going to just give it a go. I haven't a clue. Mateusz Morawiecki. Morawiecki. I don't know, something like that. Um, anyway, he was in uh, yesterday morning for a big, long debate. It was I, a f- good few hours, wasn't it? Loads of speakers. Um, and he had a f- around 40 minutes to speak and it was all about um, this rule of law crisis happening in Poland. Um, Mick, talk, tell us a bit first what this whole, a bit of the context behind this whole debate, what's it about? Because it's to do with the ruling that happened in, in a Polish court. Yeah, no, um, I went into the plenary session uh, yesterday morning in Faris and uh, it was really interesting. And um, 
I, I didn't realise myself that so much is at play and I kind of just, I was kind of putting it off as just another uh, it'll, it'll spat uh, between a member state and the Central European authorities. But in actual fact, um, it, it's the, the Poles are digging their heels in and um, uh, this could turn out to be um, pretty serious and complicated because um, the Poles will be reluctant to back down. Well, what happens? And the, so will so. the EU. Well, what's going on is yeah. um, back in 2017, 2018, um, the Poles introduced uh, a constitutional tribunal 2018, in actual fact, it was, right? Uh, it was when this new government uh, was elected and um, they they looked to change the judicial rules, right? And what they did was um, they introduced, they used this constitutional tribunal to overrule the judiciary, right? So uh, the EU were challenging it and they um, triggered Article 7, which uh, is is around European law. And they were saying that um, uh, Poland was contravening uh, the European law that as, as laid out. And um, so uh, there's been some battles going on in the courts uh, ever since then uh, and with no great result yet. But things have got a bit worse of late. And only recently... Uh, the Polish government, uh, through the vehicle of uh, the Constitutional Tribunal, have declared that the EU law is not compliant with Polish uh, law. So in other words, uh, there's a problem and that the argument then goes back to, they're saying that, well, you have your EU law, we have our law, and they're uh, not compliant. And we're saying that our law trumps European law. Uh, they're saying that the law of each individual member state uh, overrules EU law. So this is a, going to be a big debate and will be very interesting. Well, I mean, it's absolutely massive. I mean, first of all, there's a lot of talk now about kind of poll exit, which is, are the polls going to leave? And the first thing to say is, is that, well, actually... Poland has no interest in leaving. They're getting a potload of cash from the European Union. They get the most out of all members. Absolutely, millions and millions and millions. Uh, the European Union is really popular in Poland. 80% of people allegedly want to be involved in it. And there's no procedure to expel a country. So actually, the only way a country can leave is if they voluntarily leave. But mixed right, I mean, this is getting to the heart of how the European Union is organised. Because when people join the European Union, they join it on the basis that EU law is supreme, that it trumps all of the laws in the other member states. And Poland, like all the other countries, Ireland included, signed up to that situation. So given that all laws aren't already in place when you join, the laws change with time. The Court of Justice of the European Union interprets laws and applies them regarding whether they're compatible with the European Union um, and they have issued a number of rulings and they do this all the time about yeah. all countries loads yeah, yeah. of them right so let's be clear the European Court of Justice 
issues rulings all the time and sometimes they're hugely problematic for many countries and we have to be honest about it as well there are loads of countries which don't implement the rulings or well there's none that have said we're not going to implement the rulings Mm -hmm. but there's some who drag their heels or maybe do it in a way in which it's not really proper but nobody has yet come out and said you know what these rulings don't apply to us actually they're only a load of rubbish and that's the difference here because when you see it against the backdrop of what's happening in other member states and other countries ignoring but not as blatantly some of the rulings if this catches on the European Union is finished because you can't yeah, have levels. a union unless yeah. the law is supreme and interestingly enough countries seen as we're here like France uh, at the moment have asked their constitutional court to look at a CJEU ruling in terms of data protection, data retention issues to see is that ruling compatible with French law. Now, the French Constitutional Court haven't come out with a ruling on that yet. But again, you could see it could unravel. So that's one side of the story is the big implication for the EU. The other is what's going on with Poland, because this Law and Justice Party was elected in 2015. They're quite right wing, quite conservative. Um, now, Mick, I was away at a at a hospital appointment, but Mick listened to the prime minister and he was in at the ruling and found him quite impressive, mm. actually, because Poland has been in a trouble about loads of stuff about the LGBTIQ free zones, about the restriction on abortion. But some people in Poland would say, well, you're interfering with our way of life, the way we do things, and you're going into more uh, areas of Polish society that actually the EU doesn't have a competence in. So there's a big background of stuff there as well. You thought your man was quite impressive, Mick, didn't you? Yeah. Um, seemingly he was... Um, first of all, it was, it was uh, very good of him to come because he didn't have to. And not everyone puts his head on the block and uh, appears before the parliament to be questioned by everyone and anyone. Uh, it's interesting he did come, though. Like, obviously, like and you're saying, he spoke about 40 minutes and it was quite impressive. He obviously uh, really wanted to, though, to get a message across. He didn't want a debate to happen on Poland without a good defence being made at the same time yeah. by by him and his party. And So there was actually, yeah. there was great theatre in there, right? Because yeah. uh, there was a running battle, seemingly which seems strange, right, for a, a prime minister to come to the place, but seemingly they'd only allowed five minutes for him, right? For God's sake. Yeah. Uh, that's, that was, uh, maybe I'm wrong on that, but that's what I read today, right? And But he took 35, right? Now, three times the president interve- intervened and tried to get him to stop. And, uh, and <laughs> at one stage, the, the, prime, the Polish prime minister turned around and said, I said I was taking 35 and I'll take 35. <laughs> <laughs> but um, listen, he was he was gung-ho. He was very direct and he was very strong and he spoke really well. Now, listen, I'm sure I wouldn't agree with much of, what his pol- with much of his politics, but he was very formidable. And he had all the polls lined up uh, in the chamber who applauded him and gave him standing ovations and I mean it was uh, it was really interesting what went on there'd be loads of people in the right wing in Europe who'd love him I'd say yeah, yeah but I mean and, and then of course uh, the first stop uh, in reply to him were the EPP who uh, are actually taking the moral high ground and mm. um, obviously opposing them right and giving out about it because but then of course there's probably not many Polish MEPs in EPP well there's quite a, there's around 17 I think there's 52 there? in total how many? 52 
Right. And most of them are in the ECR group. There's two different parties in the ECR group, which is that um, conservative and reformist group, which is where the PIS is, the, the Law and Justice Party. I think your friends party. in the EPP. But there's, I think the EPP are the second. Um, yes, right, yes. Then there's no representation in Renew in the Liberal group. There's uh, around six or seven in S&D or something. It's very small. But it's interesting now, I didn't yeah. see Sikorsky there yesterday. And yeah. Sikorsky would be one of the biggest players in Poland, right? Yeah. He'd be, he's a, a former prime minister, former minister of defence in Poland, but a, a pretty serious We player. featured Poland before and it, it does have a disproportionately large uh, membership inside the conservative group and yeah. really nothing on the, not only the left in our group, but even the Greens and these things, they wouldn't be really in that place. But yeah, I mean, green. there is an argument to say, and in fairness, Poland and Hungary use it as the bad boys in the club, like, you know, are gaining traction from their argument. Who the hell do ye in the European Union think ye are of telling us what to do? Like we are elected governments. We've been elected by our people and it's our people who will throw us out, not you bureaucrats in mm. Europe and that's a, an argument that we need to look oh, into yeah. and, a bit and more he was at Payne's yesterday and he says we're in power he says because the Polish people put us there and he says we'll be put out of power by the Polish people not by ye mm. Mm. but uh, just to go I was mentioning the fact that Article 7 had been triggered against Poland in 2018 but the procedure uh, which uh, at the last stage would require unanimous unanimity of all EU countries. So we're, we're talking about yeah. going to the council, right? And uh, this is totally unlikely given that Poland's ally, uh, Orban, is in power still in Hungary. And uh, so that's been stuck in the council ever since, right? Mm. So they weren't really making any progress on it. But uh, the Polish prime minister yesterday was accusing the EU's top court of pushing a creeping expansion of its powers and a silent revolution, he said, taking place not on the basis of democratic decisions, but through court rulings. Mm. Yeah. You see, this is an area that needs to be explored more because what does the rule of law mean and what does the independence of the judiciary actually mean? Because on paper, it's absolutely true, an elected government holds the will of the people. But like you look at that in an Irish context and you say, well, how true is that really? And when you take the amount of people who don't vote and all of that, you have to factor that in. So therefore, laws have to be supreme yeah. as long as the process for overseeing and implementing those laws and that they're imposed universally. So it doesn't matter who you are, you abide by this law. And that's the problem that's happening in a lot of these countries. Now, Poland and Hungary are true to say they're being picked upon in one way. And the one way is, is that there are a whole number of other member states which there isn't full independence of the judiciary either and nobody says anything about them. So you've had huge problems which we featured here before in terms of Spain, uh, the legacy of the Franco regime, so old judges sort of making sort of mad rulings and so on. There's problems in France, there's problems which we've dealt with before in terms of Bulgaria of political appointees and all this and we've had our own debate in Ireland about the whole judicial reform bill. It was uh, a big legacy in the last stall that we were involved in. But some of the stuff that's happening in Poland is different. It would be wrong for us to give the impression that there isn't a threat here or that what's at stake isn't mm. important because it is. I mean, what the Polish Law and Justice Party have done has been quite blatant. So they've basically gone in 
and force judges out. So they forcibly retired judges. And these would be judges who would be known to have maybe been fairly interpreting the law. So when they don't follow the line and implement what the party is saying, then they're ousted. They also brought in a politically loaded disciplinary chamber. Mm. And this was the thing that the European Court of Justice ruled on because it wasn't, you know, we've had complaints about judges in Ireland and we say, well, there should be a process where judges are accountable. That's true. Nobody should be above the law. But this tribunal was completely politically pointed. So it wasn't because you weren't turning up or you were doing mad because you weren't Im- implementing the ruling they liked because you've said, no, I'm going to bring in the European Court of Justice ruling, which you have to do as a judge in the European, uh, in any European court. And the ones that were doing that were being pushed out. So it was kind of being interfered with in a way in which hasn't been done in other countries. And that's what... Um, I suppose the, Europe, the the judgment that triggered then the constitutional tribunal and ruling which said, well, do you know what? It doesn't matter because our laws in Poland trump what's going on in Europe. But you mm. can't really have that, to be honest, because what it does mean is it means despotic governments can come in, change the laws and do what they what they like in that regard, you know. Um yeah, it's complete but, political interference, though, mm. in in a judicial process. And the Commission and the Court of Justice of the European Union have said this now for a few years. So they've been commenting on the situation in Poland. I think the peak of it now, and they're saying tensions are highest yet because of this latest ruling saying basically F off EU law, because if you're attacking the whole primacy of the of EU law, you're, there's no actual union left there. It completely changes the whole basis of the European Union and what is it then a, a, a forum for cooperation without any kind of laws or binding institution or uh, binding regulations so well I mean the Polish Prime Minister actually raised that yesterday and he says that actually when they joined the European Union they saw, they understood it as a forum for cooperation rather than one that was going to lay down the law for everybody now what, what, I, I see a problem as well for the European institutions in that von der Leyen is the head of the commission and she's very weak. And von der Leyen is, she she deals in generalities, right? And she doesn't deal in specifics very much, right? And her general line is, we cannot and will not allow our common values to be put at risk. And she's saying that Poland are putting our common Mm. values at risk. And von der Leyen loves to talk about values and human rights but this is the same lady that when Israel were trying to bomb Gaza back into the Stone Age and Israelis had killed 66 Palestinian children with illegal bombing and the Hamas reply, uh, which you can also deem as being illegal, killed two children in Israel. But she could only find space in a month to condemn one side. She condemned Hamas for firing rockets at Israel when the world and his aunt knows that there is no comparison. There's, you cannot talk of a two-sided situation. So are these our values? Are, so what are our values? And it's all very well to spout, oh, we cannot and will not allow our common values to be put at risk. Our, the so-called common values in the European Union are put at risk every day by policy, by decisions, 
of the institutions of the European Union where we are totally selective in how we apply our rules. Mm. No, and that's, I actually think you've hit it right on the head on that. And it's a little bit like, as you were talking there, I was thinking, it's a bit, a bit like the Hillary Clinton, uh, Donald Trump sort of tra- trounce and Hillary, you know what I mean? It was the exact same thing. It was that liberals speak talking about values, but in reality, the people were being left behind and were being badly betrayed and economically been left behind in that as well and Trump was able to use that be the the man of the people even though he wasn't like you know and I think with the polls it's a bit similar but they're playing it I mean but in areas of law it is different too because if the polls the polls would be correct if the European Union was trying to seize new competencies, as it were. But that's not what's been spoken about here. What's been talking about here is the primacy of EU law and that the basis of all they're being asked of is that you don't interfere with your judiciary, like, you know, that you allow them make decisions based on the law and they interpret European law uh, as it is and... That's it. Like the, the the competences are laid out in the treaties. There's the Treaty of the Function yeah. of the European Union and the Treaty of the European Union. And that's it. So there's they can't do anything beyond that. I don't that think they're getting creeping powers. I mean, but he's right in the respect that the, the European Union that Ireland joined, for instance, and the earlier countries um, was completely different. It was a completely different entity and it has turned into a completely different thing now. It's a big, almost a, a super state at the moment. It has foreign policy powers, which came with Lisbon and has uh, the trade powers. It has a lot of legislation now, which it wasn't like this originally. So in that sense, it's true. But also Poland joined late in the club. It was 2004. It knew what it was signing up to. And as you said, Claire, it's all in the treaties. That's the competences they have to uh, sign up to when they join the club. And the the only way it can work or else the whole thing is completely okay. useless is if there's some sort of hierarchy of law. Now, the other interesting thing is when Lisbon had to be passed, you remember everyone had to go vote. So we all had to go change the constitution. So that was a, an issue of compatibility between the constitutions, really. But then it's being interpreted as others well, we're the only hierarchy. people in that. We're the only people in in Europe in that category where we have to change our con, con, uh, constitution. We have to go to the people when new competencies are being assumed, which is great for us. Like, but it does get to the heart of where is this project going? Well, um, mm. yeah. Listen, there's a, there's a lot of issues at play, and um, obviously. Uh, everyone will remember that uh, when the Irish did vote, uh, we got the wrong answer, and they made us vote again. And uh, and you're right, Damien. Uh, the EU is unrecognisable today to the one that started. And we even see it in in the, in the uh, committees uh, in particular, we just see a genu- a gradual changing of of the goalposts. Right? For example, I mean, I was talking about the um, the the first allegation against uh, the polls in 2018 being held up. Uh, by the member states because it requires the approval of everybody. Obviously, Poland wouldn't have a vote given that they're the, the, the subject. Uh, but with Hungary backing Poland, uh, they can't get across the line. Only last week, there's a new report uh, on European security and foreign policy. And it was written by David McAllister, uh, who was often on RTE at home. Uh, he's a right-wing uh, German EPP um, and he's the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee but he's actually in his report 
he has asked for a change to the rules on council decisions around foreign <laughs> affairs matters. For example, in, in the case of a rapid reaction, in the case of them wanting to attack a country who they thought weren't behaving well. For example, if they wanted to move in on Belarus, right? Uh, he says that we should do away with the old rule and we should make it majority voting for member states. Mm. Now, I mean, is, that is scary. That's what von der Leyen even says. Uh, she wants qualified majority voting term, right? in the council, yeah. Yeah. which is actually quite scary. And this, in terms of creep, that is a big creep that area is, because is, is it's not the club we joined yeah. at all. And as a neutral country in the European Union, which is quite militarised, it's actually mm. quite scary to and think that we'd the, be dra- dragged into the some The German courts like triggered some of this as well yeah. by arguing in relation to the bonds they created right. and gave great comfort to the Poles and the Hungarians by the German constitution. Constitutional yeah. Court ruled recently that the e- European Court of Justice rulings were not supreme and you didn't see a special debate in the European Parliament on Germany. Now the difference there was the German government wasn't, it was the German a genuine sort of German constitu- the German government were actually raging uh, as well but the point is you know it's just Yeah, it's interesting. It's very selective. And I suppose what we're trying to highlight here is that this project and the whole area of national sovereignty and trying to protect that and trying to protect the rule of the people, but yet work cooperatively with your neighbours is a big... But but the big picture is that uh, I would say at the moment, under no circumstances do the EU want Poland to leave the European Union. Under no circumstances do Poland want to leave the European Union. Mm. Right? But... What you're going to see is, given that the EU is looking to expand its range of competencies, uh, and and health is an example now, right? I guarantee yeah, you, big one, yeah. the European Union is going to take far more control over the health issue. Mm. Because they used, I mean, I can still remember Phil Hogan several times staying in the chamber when he was still in power, when it was put to him about um, interfering uh, with health not being funded properly across Europe or whatever, right? He says, not the rules, he says, yeah. member state competency, member state competency, right? But yeah, at the same time, uh, the European Union were able to uh, f- pressure Ireland into mm. into reducing cuts to our health service, right? Mm. So th- there's, there's a limit to what and which competency we had. But that the European Union's role there is going to increase and you was go- you're going to see a lot of fight back from individual Eastern countries in particular against being talked down to. Hmm. And they do think, whatever the rules were like, I mean, Damien, I'm not saying for a second, I mean, uh, you're outlining the rules as they were when most of them joined in 04. Uh, but that will not stop them from actually going down the path. We want to rule our own affairs and we're glad to be in the European Union. But, well, it's, and, it's, and that's it's, going to grow. It's yeah. a reflection that Brexit has changed everything. And that this project is a very tenuous one, actually, you know, and uh, the idea that, you know, I suppose we're all one Europe marching ahead is an absolute load of total codswallop. And you are right, like there is a creeping authoritarianism, an attempt by the Commission to seize more and more power. It's been led by the thousands of lobbyists who are based here at the behest of Big Pharma, Big Agri, the military industrial complex. They want a centralisation of decision making and resources 
resources so that they can cream it off for themselves. It's worked pretty well for them. So they want that expanded out. They want it expanded out to member states, to privatisation and all of these other things of essential services because there's money to be made out of it. And there's a contradiction between that on the one hand and then the lives of the citizens who are being left behind. And the only thing that the EU is promoting is what they would be seen as liberal social values, which are values, obviously, that we would say everybody's the right, you know, women's rights, LGBTI rights, anti-racism and all this. And these are really, obviously, very, very important issues. But the way in which the Commission deals with them is actually alienating a lot of people in that as well. And they're just using that as a cover. They're pretending to care about these issues as an achievement. Uh, But in actual fact, by them doing that and not doing the other stuff, they're leaving a lot of people in the more conservative countries that have emerged from years of being under, you know, years ago out of Stalinist regimes and so on into saying, well, they're not our values. We Mm. come, whereas in actual fact, respect for human rights is an international value. It doesn't matter who you are or what religion you have. You should respect everybody else's right to be the person that they want to be. So it's a kind of a false argument that they... uh, old Eastern European countries are using but it's the behaviour of the Commission and that agenda that's fueling it I mm. think you know. Oh, yeah, no, I mean that's a very strong point and what you're really saying is that uh, d- these uh, strong and very important liberal issues uh, are being weaponized. Mm. Right. Exactly, and, and, and they're broad as well. Fundamental yeah. rights, like of course, it can be interpreted in many ways, and it can be used. That's mm. the thing. But on the other side of the coin, is that it is very important to have rights protected, and you can't allow for minorities to be discriminated against in a union of values. Apparently, uh, absolutely. So, but 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 the challenge for the EU is that it doesn't apply that evenly, right? Like for example, they're they're very concerned about the human rights of people from Belarus at the moment Mm. because uh, NATO uh, are moving on Belarus to get uh, to undermine Russia. But they they have, have, I mean, and von der Leyen is the perfect example of it. She's not interested in the human rights of the Palestinians. Mm. They're not interested in the human rights of the 17.6 million people that are starving in Yemen at the moment. And and, and it's being caused by, I mean, the... European member states are supporting the US and the Saudis and the UAE in committing a genocide there. So their human rights don't count. But we're very impar- interested in some human rights. Yeah, and even more importantly than that, and you're totally right, the interference outside the European Union is immense. But we should also remember is that they don't care at all about the human rights and fundamental rights within the European Union. Yeah, so you'd have the example of the Catalans saying, oh, well, you know, the Poles and the Hungarians would say, well, look at you're fucking giving out to us about stuff. Like, we haven't said anything to Spain and their discrimination against the Catalans. You haven't said anything to Bulgaria and their segregation of the Rome. You haven't done anything and all of this because it's blatant and it's exactly that. It's not a universal application but, of law, you know? I mean, that, that reminds me of a topic that we need to cover uh, in some podcasts, right? I'm, I'm reading a, a powerful book by Samuel Mine at the moment, right? He, he, he's, I think he's based in Yale University in America. Uh, but it's about the fact that we talk about human rights, but there's been a, a lot of manoeuvring as to what exactly is human rights. Mm-hmm. And it's it's been reduced to f- uh, freedom of speech and freedom of movement, freedom of expression to a great degree. Yeah, and he says they're refusing yeah. to allow uh, the right to a house, mm-hmm. 
the right to uh, uh, accessible and, and affordable health care, the right to uh, a fair education. They're refusing to actually, as that, those items, those, those concepts were originally part of our human, seen as part of our human right. Yeah, yeah. But, but they have been moved out of it but, because it doesn't suit uh, neoliberalism. And we had that conflict when I was the rapporteur on the, on the fundamental rights report in the parliament and it's exactly that. So you get the big groups in the parliament and they're quite happy to sort of sign up to a, a motion that says, oh, we don't be racist or whatever, like, and they, they look good and they're, yes, yes, they're anti-racist. But they wouldn't deal with the economic and social rights, which are the foundations which guarantee, well, at the moment, because of the way they're organised under capitalism, it guarantees inequality. But yeah. it should mean if you haven't got a roof over your head or enough food to eat or you haven't got any, then you can't achieve your potential. Then you're not really worried about whether somebody is being racist to you because you're too hungry or you're too cold. You, do you know what but I mean? But they're, also, they're, they're underpinning local. of the civic and political <coughs> rights, which exactly. there's talk about so much you care about. And like you're saying, Mick, and we should have the Irish government come in next and talk about the housing crisis and the breach to our European values there. If they were, if it was the, the case that socioeconomic rights were on the same level as political rights in the European Union, but they're not at all. And like we can't actually talk about these kind of rights at all where actually it's impossible to progress anything like that in this parliament because the only thing that gets people um, doing anything here is the, the easier ones, the ones that you can use as a stick, uh, the political rights. So. But but just to go back to the the, the, judiciary, the judiciary end of it, and uh, Claire and myself, we were on the uh, Justice Committee for our last three and a half years in the, in, in the Dáil, and uh, a huge bill that was going through at the time was around judicial appointments. So it was very much about the debate as well about the independence of judiciary, uh, how much of a hands-on approach did the government have in deciding who gets to become a judge and the different areas of judiciary in Ireland. And it was really interesting. But no, And I know there's, there's a, we could speak for hours about it, but I want to just add uh, one point on it, and that's because I actually rang uh, when I knew we were going to talk about Poland uh, this morning, uh, and just in terms of the independence of the judiciary, I rang a barrister, a new young barrister in Ireland, uh, a very uh, one that I think will become uh, a serious operator, and I put to him um, that you know, given that um, um, there's, I said, you know, I remember as many uh, people that were caught in my place and others. Um, when the walls were falling down after the banking crisis and there was huge conflict between uh, builders, developers and uh, the banks and vulture funds, the Irish government set up uh, the commercial courts. Right? And I, I put it uh, to this new barrister and I said to him, I said, well, I said, listen, I said, just uh, for a quick reply, I said, uh, I said, we're talking about the independence of judiciary today on the podcast and I want to just kind of relate it to Ireland. And uh, I said, you know, given that the Irish government introduced the commercial court to deal with problems with, with that Irish individuals had uh, with the banks and with vulture funds, I said, how independent were the judiciary there in that area given that uh, the the Banks and the vulture funds won 10 nil every day in the commercial court. And there's an, 
there's thousands of people that in Ireland that suffered on, at at the end of it. And but I, so I asked him just how independent would you rate the judiciary in Ireland? And uh, he replied, uh, the the judiciary in Ireland uh, are more independent than most. He said. Uh, he says they're probably what you, but but he says what they're probably what you class as neoliberal, even more neoliberal than than the government who appoints them, and he says and that's why you see decisions in the commercials course that you refer to. He says I mean if you're looking at the judiciary as a representation of Irish society, he says they're still in the nineteenth century, generally white college educated middle and upper class men. The doll, even when its lack of immigrant TDs, is far more representative of society or the civil service for that matter. But that's a different issue than what's happening in Poland. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was an interesting. Well, no, I think that, and we used to make that point. Like the difference in Ireland is people, the judges, and the point made by the barrister that Mick consulted is accurate. They generally come from a socio-economic group that have that right-wing ethos and outlook. That's what they kind of believe. But the difference between, say, Poland and Ireland is is that, like, even though they're kind of judges in the senior courts are appointed by governments and we've had different governments come and go, the Fianna Fáil fellas didn't go and, like, sack the Fianna Gael fellas when there's a change of government or the Labour, even though they kind of favoured some of their own in a way but it was a reflection of their political thinking and let's be honest about it even though the law is written down in paper the law is interpreted by judges and the judges reflect society's mood so we saw that and the Eighth Amendment is a great example of it like the Eighth Amendment was supposed to ban abortion in Ireland to be sure to be sure we'd never have an abortion in Ireland then of course it, it clashed with the X case a young teenage girl impregnated by rape who was, wasn't being stopped from travelling to the UK and they interpret it as meaning this equal right to life of the mother meant actually that the, the mother's life was more important and they sort of came up with a solution yeah, that dealt with that because they, yeah. they reflect society's values at that time. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. every judiciary is. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an oh, there is that margin of ju- manoeuvre, yeah. Just to, just to, uh, to finish on the issue of the of the of that legislation that we did Debated for us for a, I say close to three years at home. Uh, it, it should be noted that uh, Jim O'Callaghan was the Fianna, was one of the Fianna Fáil representatives on that uh, Justice Committee at the time, and Jim was on a different league, in a different league, and on a different planet in comparison to most. He understood it so well, and he was very good. Uh, and we so, have to say hands down to Michael McDowell as well for filibuster and for months and months and months in the Shannon. <laughs> so to make Ross's that was never through. been enacted. And it's not that we thought the status quo was great. It's just yeah. that bill was a total dog stainer. But it sounded like a sort of popular, oh, mm. make them more accountable and political interference. Mm. Yeah, and there does need to be changes. But there needs to be changes by allowing ordinary people access legal courts. You can't be a barrister or a solicitor no. unless you have money, particularly a barrister because you have to work unpaid for years before you get there. You yeah. know? But, but Jim was at the cold face. So I mean, uh, he's, he's a, a very good barrister and uh, he knew where the bodies were buried. And uh, his contributions that time uh, were absolutely powerful. I mean, which, which only highlight the fact that uh, it was an absolute travesty of justice that uh, he didn't, he wasn't made Minister for Justice in mm. the new government. Uh, 
whatever the hell Mina Michal Martin was thinking of. Uh, yeah. I think Jim would have been too much at the cabinet <laughs> table for Michal to manage. Indeed. Anyway, the, the barriers for the access to justice, I think, exist in every legal system. There's There really is no system that's fair or equal or just at the moment still. I want to just finish on one question um, because this whole primacy of EU law really raises the question for people on the left. Um, is this a massive barrier or is it a barrier at all to a left government coming into Ireland, for instance, a socialist government comes to power in Ireland, then they want to do a load of things. I can see a few obstacles there already with the fact that the, of the way the EU is, is, is formed, that the, the shared competence, exclusive competence of the EU, we can't do much there. The wiggle room is a lot <laughs> restricted. Uh, obviously, with monetary policy, the euro, that's out the window. Haven't have no control over that stuff, the exclusive competences, but even the shared stuff. So what do you think yourselves? Is it a threat also to a potential well, socialist government in Ireland? I think that's why you always have to be careful what you wish for, like because there could be loads on the left uh, justifiably being critical of the Commission not doing enough in Poland and soften the debate that we have in relation to the violations of, say, abortion rights in Poland, which are a year old now, where they've restricted access to abortion, practically eliminated. So there'll be loads of people who'll be justifiably critical, but you have to be careful what you wish for as well, because people can think that it seems OK like for the EU to come in and intervene. But we have to be very careful in undermining national sovereignty because if the people in a country elect, for example, a radical socialist government in Ireland or wherever, well, then we don't want those same sticks being used against us. But the problem there is, is that the European Union is constructed in a manner in which those uh, sticks are already built in because one of the rules that you cannot break, which the Polish government have no interest in breaking, is being uh, to break the neoliberal order. So a socialist government that wanted to break the fiscal rules, the budgetary constraints would be absolutely sat upon mm. by the European Union. And that was a lot. As of Greece were. Around. Yeah, exactly. And that that's exactly where you see the ruptures in the European project. And that's what we've kind of, I suppose, been highlighting in this episode, that it's a very complex uh, scenario. Uh, and related to your question, Damien, is the fact that Jeremy Corbyn insisted for years that he could not introduce the legislation necessary for making, for challenging uh, inequality uh, in British society, in building a country where everyone was going to be treated in a fair manner. He says he couldn't do that within the, the EU treaties as they were established, especially uh, with the additions of Lisbon and Nice, which did make it a neoliberal club forever. And undoing that would be a huge challenge. And for any government, for a potential left-wing government to come to power in Ireland and to actually really have... Uh, to, uh, to run a government that would actually prioritise the interests of the people over big business, they would have to actually look at, at challenging EU treaties, which would be very, very difficult. Yeah, and they're really difficult to change. And, but I think the moral of the story is, is that, like, don't be expecting European institutions to defend your living standards and your future and a fairer society but that actually we can do that through cooperation with people in Europe because we've seen a lot of really good people, a lot of really good initiatives and ideas with people across Europe. And it's 
the peoples and the political movements of Europe that will change things, not EU bureaucratic institutions. Yeah, and the other final moral of the story is also need to be very aware of what direction this place is going in because it looks like it's going in one direction now and it's not going to make things easier. <laughs> so we need to be careful and and try to influence and make sure that it doesn't get any worse than it already is. <laughs> anyway, Shinoel, okay, that's it. Enough. Goodbye.